Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. As we just continue in this book of Ephesians, if you're just joining with us, we've been in it for a while. We're going to be in it for, oh, just a long time. Um, (laughs) Who knows? We may see the new heaven and new earth. We'll finish (laughs) chapter six (laughs) when God creates a new heaven and new earth. No, I'm just kidding. Sort of. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, But the, the whole premise of Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he has this soaring and majestic view of God, and the whole point of the book is to to bring together the spiritual and the natural. They're not antithetical to each other. They don't, it's not oil and water. It's never how God intended it to be. There is a spiritual world and a spiritual reality. You can choose to ignore it or dismiss it, but it doesn't make it any less real. And what Paul is saying is that the spiritual realm and the physical realm, they interface together, that they affect each other. And you can see that through the whole Bible. You read the whole Bible and you see that it's actually, I believe, the spiritual realm that takes that first step in imposing itself on our physical realm. And you and I are spiritual beings. Again, you can choose to disagree and that's okay. but I believe we're spiritual beings. And as spiritual beings, we're always giving access to our lives. The question is, who are we giving access to? There's only two choices. Either you're giving greater access to God to work in your life, or you're giving access to the enemy. There's no third choice. The Care Bears aren't an option. (laughs) I don't know why I just thought of that. That's so weird and random. Care Bear Stare. All right. So that's not a thing. It's not a real thing. (laughs) So this is what Paul is saying in this. And so uh, we reviewed it last week. uh, But um, if you haven't joined us, chapter one, Paul is talking about God. He just talks about the majesty of God, the power of Jesus, that Jesus is greater than any spiritual power, principality, authority in the heavens or the earth or under the earth. There's nothing that Jesus is not greater than, is Paul's um, what he's saying in his thesis there. And, and at the beginning of chapter two of Ephesians, Paul then kind of hits the nail on the head and he said, here's the problem. So God is great, he's powerful and he's good. Here's the problem. That you and I, without God, are dead. We're spiritually dead, which means we can't even move toward God without his initiative for us to move toward him. And what Paul is beginning to outline for us, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more today, is that we need to actually, I think in a healthy way, we need to step back and remove ourselves from the equation a little bit more. Often when we think of God and when we think of salvation and we think of what Jesus came to do and all of these things, um, at least if you're like me, sometimes you, you believe this idea that, well, I'm really, I'm really pretty good. So like, I have something to offer to the equation. Like, um, 
you know, I'm pretty kind, I'm generous, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other thing. And Paul's saying, no, without God, you're dead. You have no function without him, literally. And Paul highlights three things we've talked about. You can go back and listen to them. But our culture, the zeitgeist, the prevailing ideas of our world, they oppose God. The devil himself can influence you in the spiritual realm under him can influence you. And your own desires, your own flesh, something the Bible calls the flesh or human nature. And Paul is saying those three things are the things to watch out for in your life, to understand when they are influencing you away from what God has designed for you. And in Ephesians 2, chapter 4, you can turn there. Sorry, Ephesians 2, that doesn't make sense. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, you can turn there in your Bibles if you have them. It's in the New Testament, uh, partway in. And um, we're going to just pick it up there because Paul has just laid out this argument that w- w- apart from God, we, we've just got nothing. We're just completely lost. And then in verse 4, he says, but God... And I mentioned last week that those could be two of the most powerful words in the whole Bible. You were completely dead. You were completely a captive. Paul says, you know, without God, you are actually literally under the controlling influence of the devil. Not hey, I can, I can make this go on my own. I, I've got some amount of willpower and control and I've got some amount of power and influence to exert. Paul says, no. Without the, the presence of God in your life, you are absolutely, undeniably, definitively under the control of enemy forces in your life. And there's nothing that you can do to change that. There's only these two words, but God. That's the only thing we have. That's it. But it's more than we need, and it's more than enough. The problem is we have a lot of buts that we put before the but God. It's like we have a whole essay full of but this, but my strength, but my business, but my finances but my gifts, but my skills, but my charisma, but my, but my, but my, but my. And we try and go through this whole list of things. And sometimes when we get to the end of those, we come to realize none of it has worked. And by God's grace alone, we come to the point where we go, but God, but God who's done for me immeasurably more than I could ever hope or imagine. But God, who so loved the world that he sent his son, we didn't ask for it. We didn't even know we needed it. The whole point of Paul saying we're dead is literally, you didn't know you needed help. But God, but God, and he says, but God is so rich in mercy And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace you have been saved. The but God factor in our life. You and I 
didn't even know we needed saving. But God, in his grace and in his mercy and in his love that we can't even understand or comprehend, it's his love and his mercy that compelled him to reach through the chasm of sin and grab a hold of us. You didn't do it. He did, and he does. He's not done being the but God in your life. He's not done with that. Your life cannot drum up or stir up any more love for God than he already has for you. You can't become more lovable to God because when we were full of sin and completely abhorrent to God, God despises sin. He does. He hates it, the Bible says. When we were full of that kind of stuff, his love compelled him to create a solution to have relationship with us. You can't make yourself more lovable to God. He loves you fully and completely and wholly. I just want to look at a few verses that outline that. We have them on the screen here. Oh, this is the wrong sermon notes that I have in here. There we go. Let's get the right ones. I was just looking at that going, huh, that's funny. It's not Ephesians. <laughs> um, just to give you some context, Paul doesn't really elaborate on the love of God here, but I just want to give you a, for a few verses as context. First John 4, 9 and 10, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, we were dead. We couldn't choose to love God. But that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. First John 4.16, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. Romans 8, 35 to 39. I'm actually going to read that full section of verses because it is so powerful. If you're suffering under the weight of condemnation and shame and regret and wondering how God could even love you, these are great verses to read. I'm going to actually pick it up in verse 31. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? This is the, the reality of Jesus coming to save us. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us? whom God has chosen for his own. No one, for God himself, has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. He's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us 
And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fear or for today nor worries about tomorrow, not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you need to hear that and actually hear it and internalize that God's love is secure for you. God isn't some floozy flake who is this capricious, angry deity who, you know, on a whim will just choose to just reject and abandon you. He says, no, there's nothing that can separate you from the love that he has for you. It's sufficient. There is no greater security in our lives, no greater potential for security than the love of God. That's why the Bible says that God's perfect love casts out all fear. If we really understood how loved we were by God, we would worry about nothing. But it's hard for us. And so Paul is laying out this argument that it's God's initiative and it's God's rich love and mercy that have reached out to you and I and offered us hope, offered us a solution for a problem that we couldn't fix. Something I've been meditating on for a little while, I wanna just walk through with you something that I think um, relates to this. And we see it in scripture. Sometimes I think on the, you know, we have two kind of extremes with God's love. Either one, we always struggle. We have the extreme of never accepting it and never fully realizing it. We always struggle to wonder how we could be loved by God. And then there's people on the other extreme that say, well, God loves me so I can just do whatever I want because he loves me. Doesn't he love me when I do whatever I want? And the answer is yes. But there's a difference between God loving us and God being pleased with us. Those, there's a chasm between those two. God's love for you and I is secure and firm. We can't earn it. We can't prove ourselves for it. There's nothing we can do to increase it. We can't diminish it. It's sufficient for us. But there's a big difference between God unconditionally loving us and being pleased with how we live. I love my kids. There's nothing they could do to cause me to not love them. But when they ask me why I go up for a second helping of dinner, I'm not pleased with them. <laughs> that does not please their father when they bring conviction halfway to the kitchen stove <laughs> like happened last night. I'm, not, I'm just, uh, you're my therapy group here. I want to read to you some verses that talk about the difference, I think, between God loving us and being pleased with us. Because so many of us are wondering why we feel distant from God, why we feel like he's not active and working in our life. And some of you even believe you can just carry on doing whatever you want to do. And that because God loves you, it won't affect your relationship with him. But it does. Something I've been learning over the last few years of my life 
I've been increasingly beginning to understand the pleasure of God when God is pleased with me and when I've grieved him. He can love us unconditionally and still be grieved by us and still actually be hurt by the things that we choose to do in our life. So here's some verses, Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all of your heart and soul. Ecclesiastes 2.26, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. You notice how it doesn't say those who love him, those who go to church once a week, those who please him, those whose lives are surrendered, who die to what they want from life and live for God's pleasure, live to say, God, what do you desire from me? I'm going to reject that stuff that grieves you, those patterns of sin that we find ourselves in, the thought life that we carry and the way that we treat each other and our families and our spouses, the way we treat each other in church can grieve the heart of God. He's not just saying, just love me, just feel good about me. When those emotions come, he's saying it needs to boil down to a decision. You have to make choices that honor and please God. Malachi 2.17, you've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? This is powerful. You've wearied him by saying that all, get this, all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight. No, it's okay. Grace, right? Grace. It's okay. Just let them be them. You do what you do. Let your truth be your truth. We do this in the church. We're terrified in love and in accountability to confront each other over sin in our lives. We're terrified to actually hold a standard in our life. And often, this is my own experience, I'm terrified to speak into somebody else's life when I know I'm violating that thing every day. I'm not gonna go, I'm gonna claim for myself God's grace and mercy. I'm not going to approach that situation with a 10-foot pole, because I'm clinging on for dear life to God's grace and mercy. But what Paul is saying and what the writer of Malachi is saying is there's a different way to live where we approach each other. We don't shame each other in public and do things like that, but in the relationships that God's given us in the framework of accountability and confidentiality and those things that we actually approach people and say, look, is your life consistent with what you say it is? Does your life please God? Or are you just hanging on to the love factor? You have wearied him by asking, where is God? Where is the God of justice? Romans 8, 6 to 8, so letting your sinful nature control your minds leads to death, but letting the spirit control your minds leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature, that's what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians, is always hostile to God. That's what he's saying here. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. 
God loves you. <laughs> he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. But when you willfully walk in sin, you're not pleasing him. You're grieving his heart. And he has designed you to live for something much greater than that. If you could see the fruit of hard choices in the moment, what the eternal fruit in your life would be to say, you know what, I'm shutting this part down. I don't know if I'll ever get this back. I don't know if what the consequence will be for this. I don't know what the outcome will be, but I'm shutting it down because I know that it grieves the heart of God and I want to please my Father. And I have a bigger picture in mind. I have an eternal picture in mind. So I'm I'm willing to take the step. I'm enacting my own will in this and I'm choosing to live a life that's consistent with what I say I believe. It's what it means to please God. Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Philippians 2.13, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. Do you know the best part of the Bible is not like this ridiculous standard and then just go figure it out? Peter said that God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing in Jesus that you lack to confront the stuff going on in your life. There's nothing. You have all of the love, all of the grace, all of the mercy necessary. You have all of the power of the blood of Jesus at your disposal to walk in victory. But it's a choice that we make. Hebrews eleven six. it's impossible to please God without faith. Ephesians 5, 10, and 11, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. Psalm 104, 34, may all my thoughts be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Proverbs 16, 7, when people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. Man, I want to understand this more. I feel like I'm like at like 1% of understanding here. I think there's something so rich and deep here. But the point is that God did something for us with his love and his mercy that we can't do for ourselves, but we have a role to play in appropriating the kingdom of God in our life. There's a difference between God's unconditional love for you and whether your life, your thought life, your actions, what you say, the decisions you make, whether those please God. And I believe that in that spectrum, there's things that happen when we begin to live a life that pleases God. It's like as a parent, if you're a parent here, if you're a kid, you might know this, that when we please our parents, they let the rope out a little bit further. They give us greater assignments and greater responsibility and a greater partnership. What God is saying is I've created you for something so great. Even if you're 99 years old here today, God can powerfully and wants to powerfully work and move in your life. He's never done working. 
I've created you with a design and a blueprint from heaven. But I don't know if I can trust you with it. Those are big, different things. Are we trustworthy with the calling that God has put on our life? Go read Joseph's story if you want to find out what it takes to be seen as trustworthy. Paul goes on to say, Ephesians 2.5, that he gave us life. He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So he's saying three things there. That he gave us life, he raised us and seated us. So we're not gonna fully unpack those. There's a lot you could say about them. All that to say that everything that needed to be done for you and I to walk in victory is already done. When Paul says that we're seated with Christ. Now, anybody, I think, in my opinion, who tells you they have that totally figured out and what that dynamic looks like is lying. I think there's a spiritual reality. Uh, the Bible says that we are, and Paul is saying it, we're presently in the spiritual realm seated with Christ. There's a reality there that we don't just quite understand. I think what he's saying is two things. One, uh, you have the opportunity and the responsibility and the calling to live from heaven down, not earth up. Two, when you're seated with Christ, that, that image is, is the image of authority. Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. When we're seated with him, it says that the Bible has given us the authority of Christ. In his name, we have the authority to walk in kingdom power on the earth. There's nothing that the devil can do or bring to your life that you don't have the authority in Jesus' name to forbid and to stop. The only license, the only legal territory the devil can have in your life is the territory you choose to give him through what you do or what you say or what you think or what you believe. That's it. And so Paul is saying, look, everything's been accomplished. You've been raised up above this stuff. You've been seated with him. You have everything you need for life and godliness at your disposal. You can please God today with what he's given you. I love that picture too. And Paul saying that he gave us life. Dead people can't bring themselves back to life. Jesus didn't raise himself. It was the power of God that raised him. We can't change ourselves outside of the power of God. We need God's work and power in our life. Verse 6 says this, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. More of that same language. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. The interesting thing there, I'll just make one comment about that. Scholars are kind of divided on what Paul means when he says, is for, you know, for all the ages to come. Does that mean that uh, that ends when God recreates the heavens and the earth and, and um, you know, we're in eternity? Or does that actually continue on into eternity? And I actually, I don't know the answer to this, but it wouldn't 
surprise me if God's heart in Paul saying this was that even for eternity, for every age of eternity, for eternity, we're going to be looking at our lives and go, what a marvel. We're walking in the kingdom of heaven now, restored and renewed, made right, perfect, and whole. We're experiencing every blessing of God, and it's only his mercy that got me here. Every step on the streets of heaven will be a step that proclaims the love and the mercy of God for ages and ages and all eternity. Everything we do will point back to his glory. It's all from him and through him and to him. All of it. We're not going to be walking around in heaven going, hey, man, you know, we did pretty good with that. We handled that pretty good. Hey, congratulations, pats on backs. No. We're going to be living in the full glory and mercy of God and everything we do and say for eternity will reflect back and give glory to God for what he's done. So what you do now matters. The choices you and I make now, they matter. Forsake, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. Some of us, uh, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Paul is drawing these sharp contrasts here. These sharp, sharp contrasts. You cannot earn God's love and approval. Salvation is not something to be worked for, fought for, strived for. It is a gift from God. You cannot earn God's love. You can't increase the amount that he loves you and you can't decrease it. It's fully complete and sufficient for you. But he ends this phrase with something. I just want to leave you a few thoughts on verse 10. We are God's masterpiece. We talked a little bit about this last week, but God had a specific design for your life. It's not arbitrary or haphazard. God's design for your life is born out of his love and his desire for you. And the language Paul is using here is not just sort of like a functional masterpiece, not just sort of like God built you and you're like, you know, a Lego block house kind of thing but that you're a masterpiece. It literally means his craftsmanship, his creative work. I mentioned last week, it can actually mean that we're a work of art or a poem written by God. We are the product of God's skillful, intelligent design. Your life is not nothing. You're not the product of the mathematical impossibility of evolution. By the way, it is mathematically as impossible as it can get. It's that impossible. You're not a conglomeration of cells. 
that through billions of years just kind of randomly worked. I just watched a video last week from this like, leading nanoscientist. It's, I understood maybe like well, half a percent of it. <laughs> but the Cole's notes of this video is that people in the origin of life field of science are no further ahead at creating life, a single cell, than they were hundreds of years ago. With all of our technological advancements, with all of our wisdom, with everything at our disposal, we can't make a cell. And that cell is scientifically impossible for that cell to reproduce itself in any other way than it knows the A-A-B-B-A-B-A-B or whatever that stuff, I don't even know what that stuff is. But it can't do it. You are God's workmanship. His creative and intelligent design. He's got a plan for your life. And his plan is not just to save you. This is what Paul is saying. The forgiveness of your sin is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the liberation from the powers that enslaved you. This is what he's saying. Not only did he buy your freedom, not only does he forgive you, not only does he give you grace, but he's given you the power to walk in the fullness of life that he's created you for. It's not just about salvation. It's not just about getting your ticket into heaven. He's liberated you so that you can partner with him in bringing hope and freedom and life to this earth. When God heals people, it unravels the destruction of the enemy. When he frees people from demonic possession and oppression and bondage, he's unraveling the work of the enemy. When people come to give their lives to Christ, when the gospel is preached, it unravels the work of the enemy and his design and his heart for you is that you'd partner with him in the unique way that he's called you to. He's broken every chain that needs to be broken. The question is, will you join him? Will you actually partner your life with him? Let's just stand up as we close. Would you partner with him and saying, God, I, I don't want to just love you. I don't want to just passively let this life that you've given me that matters just pass by. I don't want to just be content to love you. I want to please you. God, I want to confront the things in my heart and in my life that I haven't yet seemed to have control over because I, I'm trying too hard out of my own strength to do it. God, I want to please you. I want to confront sin. I want to confront my attitudes. I want to confront my anger. I want to confront my dishonesty. I want to confront my unfaithfulness. I want to confront my addiction to pornography and my addiction to lying and cheating and stealing. I want to confront these things. I want my life to please you. God, would you couple our lives of love with faithfulness and then watch what God's workmanship accomplishes on the earth. The good works that Paul is talking about aren't religious duties. The work is living in purity and holiness.
The work is pleasing him with your life. It's not a list to do. It's a character to develop. It's sin to confront. It's the desires of our life that oppose God to confront. That's the work that Paul is talking about. And it is work. It's hard work. It requires you to get on your knees and on your face. It requires humility to invite people into your life for accountability, to confess your sin one to another, like the Bible says. It requires us to admit we can't do it on our own. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today, and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church at and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.